but this unrecognized exposure to noise may be making a, a substantial contribution to that. And again, it's, it's only been in the last couple decades that we've really started to tease that out. Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. You mentioned before, maybe not on the show, but just to me in private, you've been to multiple concerts. Oh, multiple is, I don't, I mean, I've been to more than one. So I mean, that's better than me. I've been to a, a handful. Like I haven't been to a ton. There's a lot of people and they're more loud. More than three? Mm, four or five, maybe. But I don't think you go into the second hand for a sixth, five at the most, I think. I've been to a lot of musicals. Okay, that counts, sort of, but it's not musical is in a theater rather than a stadium, I guess. How many stadium concerts have you been to? Probably two. Do you like them? And then I've been to some at the fair that were like open or the gorge, which was open. They're fine. They're loud. And actually, the most recent musical I went to was more like a concert, like rock kind of music. And that was loud. Oof. Which musical was that? Six, the musical. I wanted to see that. Everyone says it was so cool. It was phenomenal. I came across the soundtrack on Amazon Music, and I had been listening to it for a year or so before yeah. it came on tour. I think it's our hot right now. Well, yeah, it's somewhere else right now. I think it's coming to Baltimore, but it was in D.C. I saw it twice. Nice. It's a phenomenal music so good. from all the reviews I've heard. And um, it's about the six wives of Henry VIII, I believe. Yep. But I, I asked you this because do you find concerts like loud? Oh, so loud. The funny thing is, so I have an Apple Watch. This is not a plug for Apple, but I have not an Apple sponsored. Watch and it does noise monitoring. So it'll alert me if I was in a loud area and then it'll be like, oh, you might want to consider using headphones or you know, whatever. So it was like, wah, wah, wah. And you know, when I go shooting, it also will talk about- Do you know what threshold you have it at? I don't know. Whatever. Like I didn't change the settings. It's just sort of naturally whatever it is. Right. So I've been to one concert my entire life. It was for a friend's birthday. And I only went because I knew we were not in the front row and it was like a open seating on grass sort of thing. So I knew it was outdoors. Uh, otherwise I would not have gone because I cannot stand loud noises like at all. And concerts to me are just like, sounds like a nightmare. And even like at bars, like loud bars, I would put in like earplugs. Uh, what about movies um, at the theater? I usually don't go to see movies in the theater. I think we've talked about the fact that James falls asleep as soon as the lights go down. <laughs> so we don't see them often. I think the last movie I saw would have been the ninth Star Wars movie, episode nine. Okay. Don't know which one that is. That was like a while ago. But yeah, I don't. I think movies are loud. I am so glad I found a peer because every time I go to the movies, I have to wear earplugs, and everybody looks okay, at me like okay. I don't wear earplugs. I do because they're I so just, loud. I just suffer through it. Okay, but I do think that they're loud. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, today's episode is all about sound, which initially may not seem like a public health concern, but this is everything is public health. Everything is public health. Everything is public health. Thankfully, for this episode, it's not just me presenting the information. We are extremely honored. You have an expert with us. I'm Rick Neitzel. I'm a professor of environmental health sciences at the University of Michigan School of Public Health. And for the last 20 plus years, I've spent much of my career focused on understanding exposures to noise in the U.S. and around the world, and also understanding how those noise exposures can impact human health. One of my favorite things about public health and doing the show is finding these new fields that I've just never knew about and that I'm getting to learn more about as I interview more people and just like 
being plugged in into the public health space. Uh, first thing, some basics. How is sound measured? Do you know? It's measured in decibels. Now, it is not a linear scale. Do no, you? it's not. It's um. Do you know how it works? I learned this like way back in yeah, the day. Yeah, like 10 and years I, ago. I don't remember because I was in environmental and occupational health for my master's. Right. And so we had to learn about noise exposure. And I remember it's like the difference between 70 decibels and 71 decibels is like, it's not actually a one unit increase. No. It's like a weird <laughs> scale. I don't remember. I just remember when I was learning it, I was like, WTF, this doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, which is why we're not going to explain it. We're going to have Dr. Yay. Neitzel explain it. Yeah, so decibels are a very non-intuitive unit for people to think about. The underlying uh, unit that we use for sound is called a pascal. And our, our range of hearing in pascals is like 20 micropascals to 200 million micropascals. It's this huge, really unwieldy range that you really couldn't program into an instrument. So we convert those pascals into decibels by converting them logarithmically. And that takes that enormous scale of 20 to 200 million down to a scale of zero to 140, which is much easier for the human brain to wrap its mind around. But since we are a logarithmic scale, the thing to keep in mind here is this works just like the way we measure the energy from an earthquake. So for an earthquake, you might say, oh, a magnitude four versus a magnitude 4.1, that sounds you know just about the same. But in fact, that's a, a several fold difference in energy there. So as an example, a 10 decibel change uh, for sound is a tenfold increase in your exposure. So if I were to go from an average of 70 to 80 decibels, that's 10 times more sound, 10 times worse for my hearing. But if I go from 70 to 90 decibels, a 20 decibel change, that is a hundredfold increase in energy. So you can start to get the sense maybe that a small change in decibels, which you may think ah, that's not a big deal, actually is a huge deal in terms of the risk to your hearing. So yeah, so it's not intuitive, but I think a very easy way that I use for the MCAT is going up 10 decibels, so from 70 to 80, is one log increase, meaning tenfold increase. So sound in public health, a natural place to start is how does sound affect our health? Any guesses? Well, the obvious one would be if you have too much noise exposure, it could damage your ears, damage your hearing, um, make it harder to hear. I did read somewhere that the vibration of the sound can do like weaken vessels or something like that. And so I think there's some risk associated with weakened vessels, but I don't beyond that. I'm not sure. Yeah, you're pretty much spot on, like the obvious one being hearing loss. But there's actually a lot of recent epidemiological evidence that suggests that sound exposure, whether low and long or just high peaks, can affect our health. Humankind has known for probably 800 years that noise can cause noise-induced hearing loss. And we learned that basically from early occupations like uh, boilermakers and, and blacksmiths who had really high exposures, uh, even pre-industrial revolution. So noise-induced hearing loss has been well-established as, as kind of the most commonly recognized health outcome. We also more recently have recognized that there seems to be a link between noise exposure and tinnitus or tinnitus ringing in the ears. Uh, but again, that's an auditory health impact. So you might think, well, my ears are what's getting exposed, so my ears what's being damaged. However, in the past couple decades, we, the scientific community has started looking to explore what are other health effects that might be linked to noise. And there's now a quite robust body of epidemiological evidence linking noise to things like hypertension or high blood pressure. 
linking noise to myocardial infarction or heart attacks, linking noise to stroke, to cognitive deficits, maybe to depression and other psychological outcomes, and certainly to sleep disturbance and stress. And so all of those things collectively represent a tremendous public health burden. And I think this burden has been around for as long as noise has been around, but we've really only started looking for these things in the past couple of decades. And again, uh, as we continue to explore these relationships, we're kind of further solidifying this evidence that hearing loss is just the tip of the iceberg, and it might not even be the most important health outcome associated with noise. If you think about heart attacks and strokes, I mean, these are major, like top five killers of people in America and other countries. One of the things that I think is worth mentioning, recently they found a link between curing loss and dementia and Alzheimer's, and they don't quite know what the mechanism is, or maybe they do, I'm just not aware of it, but it has something to do with like stimulation. That makes sense, because if you think about the way dementia and Alzheimer's work and the way you can help delay some of the impacts are about making new neural pathways. And if you aren't getting sound input, that might make it harder to have that stimulation to create those new paths. I mean, I don't study this space, but based on what we know about that, that would be my guess. It's a swag. Your swags have always been spot on. I don't think you have ever missed with a swag. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe I should go out and buy a lottery ticket then. Yes, you should. Do you know anyone with hearing loss? I actually don't know anyone personally with hearing loss. So my father-in-law has hearing aids. I think it's just a a result of old age. I don't necessarily think it was exposure to sound, although maybe he was a mechanical engineer and he traveled around the world doing stuff with radar. Maybe. So maybe he got exposed to things, but it's also just been in the last couple of years and he turns 80 at the end of this year. So it could just be of older age. Yeah. We know that age definitely plays a role in are hearing. For example, I believe I'm at the threshold at 26 to no longer hear above certain frequency. Like we just lose the higher frequency as we age. But it is worth to protect our hearing. Interesting tangent. I love tangents. Here that we is go. related <laughs> to the point you were just making. So I think I've mentioned the fact that I used to work in a nursing home way back, right out of underground. Yes. And we were always told when we were talking with older patients, like women with higher voices, higher pitch it could be very hard for some of our older patients to hear. And so we were supposed to, like, to the extent that we could try to lower, if they were having a hard time hearing us because they would lose that upper register and it was easier for them to hear male voices or voices lower on the register. So I just thought that was an interesting... That is interesting. An important point, I think, to highlight is that just because your body got used to a noise doesn't mean it's not slowly affecting you. So I'm sure we all moved to a place... And maybe it was a little louder than our previous residence. Maybe it's closer to a street corner or maybe, God forbid, next to an airport. At the first few nights, you can't sleep. But then you sort of got used to it and you're able to sleep. But just because your body got used to it doesn't mean that it's not affecting you. So same thing with like air pollution or other small and, you know, sinister is the wrong word, but slow and (laughs) insidious. Uh, Insidious is also the wrong word, but slow and um, what's the right word here? Subtle. So in subtle ways. Have you lived in a place where like it was loud? Oh, sure. So I used to live on Broadway in Baltimore. If you are in Baltimore, you would know what that is. Yeah, I lived for folks who know Baltimore. I lived in Upper Fells Point, very near the Ritz Gentlemen's Club on Broadway. Mm. And so I had to get like blackout curtains and ones that would sort of dampen noise because there was constant road noise, people talking outside and all that kind of stuff. 
But same thing actually at work. My office in our office building used to be on the monument side of Hampton House on the outside, right next to Mama Mia's, that corner. And it was constantly loud, cars going by constantly. And when people would come into my office to meet with me, like, oh, wow, it's really loud in your office. Like, you have a lot of street noise. I was like, oh, is it? Is it really? But (laughs) now that my office is on the courtyard side, inside the U, much, much quieter. And I don't have that same sort of constant noise in the background. It's really interesting. I hadn't thought about that in a while. Yeah. You'll be surprised like what your brain can get used to. Although just because your brain got used to it doesn't mean it's good for you. There are a couple of noise sources that typically kind of top the charts in terms of how annoying they are to people in a community. And those noise sources focus a lot around transportation. So kind of the top three sources of noise that are you know, potentially harmful to people, but uh, absolutely annoying too, are air traffic noise, road traffic noise, and railroad noise. And then we can add to that construction and industrial noise. So those are kind of the four sources that many, if not most of us are exposed to on a daily basis. So now that we know sound is very important to public health and our health. So naturally, the second question is, how much sound is too much sound? Uh, I know the decibel scale and how it works, but intuitively, I actually have no idea how loud like the decibel scale is. Like, do you have any? I don't know what's your interaction with loud sound. Like, do you have any like sense, relative sense of like what is loud and what isn't? Well, I mean, I know like an airplane taking off is really loud, right? But I, I never stand next to it. I guess. Well, you're in the plane, but that's also loud. Like being on a plane is pretty loud, and it's one of those where it's not too loud. But it is loud and long Mm -hmm. in some case, like louder and long. And so thinking about the exposure, like occupational exposure to noise is a big concern. That's largely what my background has been in on this topic. I want to say a plane taking off is like 100 decibels or something near that. Now, I should probably fact check that just to make sure. But like, that's loud. Like, that's the kind of thing that you're not supposed to be exposed to for long periods like concerts are up there also, but I don't know how loud is too loud. Obviously, everyone is different, but generally speaking, anywhere in the triple digits is very loud. What's your fact check coming back? Oh, interesting. Okay. So noisy restaurant, just as a, a reference point for people, noisy restaurant, 90 decibels. No. Yeah. Flushing of a toilet can be up to 85 decibels, but interesting. How loud okay. is your toilet? <laughs> I don't know. A jet engine, 120 decibels. A balloon popping is around 160 decibels. 160? I guess some balloons are very loud. That is that is fair. When Penny barks, particularly if she's in her entryway, it's got to be like 9 million decibels. It <laughs> is like an ice pick to the base of your oh, your brain. Does she have a high-pitched bark? Is that oh, one? it is so high-pitched. And then in the entryway, it's got a slate tile floor and it just, oh my gosh, it it's so loud. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. No wonder you tell her not to bark. Yes. <laughs> Listeners, I cut this out, but sometimes Penny would bark. Cass would always like, stop it. <laughs> it's really loud. For instance, an eight hour average above 85 decibels, which is what's recommended by the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health as a, a protective level against hearing loss. 85 decibels would be about as loud as standing maybe four feet from a gas-powered lawnmower. So around 85 decibel over eight hours is what most places internationally recognize as hearing protection threshold. So above that, you need to have hearing protection. Now, America is a special country in many ways. What do you think the OSHA's threshold is? 
Um, probably like a hundred decibels. Good guess. We're both from public health and we're both very pessimistic. So the OSHA threshold. 85 decibels over eight hours is the average exposure level that most regulatory agencies around the world. In fact, our OSHA here in the US is one of the very few exceptions that allows a higher level of 90. It doesn't sound that significant. Right. But keeping in mind like five decibels isn't, isn't five units. Yeah. Just a unit of right. It is half of a log scale. Yeah, that is OSHA standards. And honestly, it's not surprising. We're behind on many things, public health-wise, as a country. Another thing to point out that, like person year, 85 decibel over eight hours can be transformed. And so there's a, a relationship that allows us to say, hey, you could spend eight hours at 85 decibels, or you can shorten the exposure duration, and that allows you to go to a slightly higher level. So it turns out from a hearing loss risk perspective, eight hours at an average of 85 is exactly the same risk as four hours at 88 or two hours at 91 decibels. Also, sudden loud sound, like gunshots, are exceptionally damaging. Now, uh, my turn to have a tangent. <laughs> I have never heard a gun go off in real life. And all my exposures are from movies, which I know is highly inaccurate. And I hear people when they talk about like portrayals of guns in movies, one thing that they always say is that if you just like in a spy film and somebody just suddenly pulls out a gun in a restaurant and fire, like everyone's ears would be ringing. And so I wanted to ask you like one movie portrayals of gun sounds and two actual gun sounds. What has been your experience? So I think movie portrayal of guns in general makes them seem way cooler and more effective and less harmful than they are. But I shoot regularly. Well, not recently because, you know, busted wrist, but getting better. But yeah, we would, we actually had to stop shooting inside. There was an indoor range we were going to. And for two reasons, one, like just breathing that stuff in if there was bad ventilation, bad life choice. But the sound, like we would wear double ear protection. So we'd wear earplugs and earmuffs. And so both in and over. And it was still, it was too much. Maybe, maybe an hour. Um, Because it's not just your own shooting, which you know when it's going to go off. It's everybody else. And some people shoot stupidly large calibers. (laughs) Like there's a substantial difference between the noise that firing a 22 makes and the noise that firing a 45 caliber or 50 caliber makes. That kind of visceral concert loud noise reaction and movie reaction that I was telling you about. That's like a 45 or 50 caliber handgun shot, it reverberates through the entire range. So I ref- I just don't want to shoot indoors anymore. So we've been shooting outdoors a lot more, which is better. Better ventilation. Well, yeah, too. better for ventilation. But some people wear double earplugs. That's a little bit harder because we're out in a range where people are giving verbal commands. So you do need to be able to hear. But yeah, it's um, I couldn't be in a place where I was exposed to that all the time, like a couple hours couple of times a month is that's a lot yeah whereas you see in movies and tv shows yeah you fire one shot without earplugs on you're gonna feel it so the fact that you could like functionally yeah do you know a whole bunch of spy moves and you wouldn't be disoriented from the noise i just i don't buy it yeah gunshots are very actually do you mind looking up yeah let's see a gunshot from a 22 caliber rifle is about 140 decibels. Wow. But a higher caliber center fire. So 22 is a rim fire. 
not that anybody needs to know this, <laughs> but center fire, which is generally the larger caliber, can be up to 165 or higher wow. decibels. Wait, you're telling me a balloon popping is equivalent to a gunshot? <laughs> I don't know. Well, that one scale said that a balloon popping was 157. Interesting. I would think a gunshot would be louder, but anyway, maybe that's just how they measured it. But my point being... Well, keep in mind that the difference between 157 and 165 is almost an entire log scale. Yeah. Sudden loud noises like gunshots are exceptionally damaging. But I think the important point that this episode is trying to highlight is that just because the sound is not super high, like 85 decibels, over a prolonged period of time, that is still considered a lot of sound and therefore needing hearing protection. And so far, we've been talking about sounds in general, but obviously certain populations are more susceptible to loud sounds than others. This is now a little bit in your wheelhouse, occupational health, which some jobs have a much higher exposure level to loud sound than others. Examples, the example that's coming up to my mind is construction workers. Um, I'm sure there are others. Oh man, I can't tell you how many times I see people running a jacket with zero hearing protection. I'm like, what are you doing? I don't even care if it's like five minutes of jackhammering. That is terrible. Terrible. Yeah. Factory workers, maybe some factories are really loud. But yeah, like occupational. I was just going to say people who drive tractors or other equipment where they're moving things around sort of beyond the construction side, like on the farm or wherever. Yeah. Uh, people working at airports. Chainsaws. Yeah, chainsaws. Lots of those. In terms of workers, though, the existing standards that we have in the U.S. and indeed around the world, and there are a range of noise exposure standards out there, they are all uniformly intended to prevent hearing loss. And so the the scientific consensus is if you're uh, above an exposure of, of eight hours at an 85 decibel average level, you are at elevated risk of noise-induced hearing loss. However, the epidemiological data on these non-auditory outcomes like heart attacks, like hypertension, would suggest that your exposure may be much lower than that. So these standards that are designed to protect against hearing loss are not necessarily protecting us against heart attacks from noise or against uh, certainly stress from noise. So I think an area where I would love to see enhancements in our policies is recognizing that, hey, just because we're keeping your hearing safe doesn't mean you're not still at risk of having some cardiovascular impacts. I would say recently there's just one group that I'm aware of in the entire world and it's the American Conference of Governmental Industrial Hygienists, uh, quite a mouthful, ACGIH. They now recognize in their recommended occupational exposure limit that an exposure of 85 decibels on average for eight hours for workers is likely not protective against heart disease and may or may not be protective against another outcome, which is occupational injuries. And so uh, research that I've done in my lab and, and that others have performed have shown pretty convincingly that workers in higher noise levels are more likely to be injured. So that's just one more reason that we should try to keep noise levels down. Now, in terms of the workplace, the good news is there's lots of options we have available to us to reduce noise exposures in the workplace. Um, We in industrial hygiene use a principle called the hierarchy of controls. There are sort of a rank order or prioritized order of how we approach reducing noise levels in the workplace. And the first thing we always think about is, can we eliminate the noise in some fashion? Are we creating noise that simply doesn't need to be there? And if we get rid of that, we have solved the problem. That's great. Another option is substitution, where maybe the piece of equipment we're using is 
super overpowered to do the job we're asking it to do. And there's a smaller, quieter piece of equipment that could still get the job done. The next step after that is something we call engineering control. So this is making physical changes to the workplace, maybe installing a barrier so the workers are separated from the noise in some fashion or installing uh, absorptive tiles uh, around the room to absorb reflections. We can also think about the next step, which is administrative controls. And so this is asking people to change their behavior in some way, maybe modifying an activity, um, training people to understand the risks associated with noise, putting up signs, warning people about high noise. And then the last step that we ever want to take in the workplace is putting people in what we call personal protective equipment or PPE. So for noise, that would include earplugs and earmuffs. And it's not that earplugs and earmuffs don't work well, they can work remarkably remarkably well. But when we ask workers to wear those devices, we are depending on them to protect themselves rather than changing the workplace to ensure that they're safe. Even a, a well-trained worker, you know, if you have a, a workforce that you've trained and provided hearing protection, in my experience, almost inevitably, some of those workers still aren't quite going to understand or not be able to wear their protection correctly, and they're not going to be sufficiently protected. So employing that whole hierarchy of controls, I would submit there are very few workplaces that we couldn't improve and make quieter uh, with enough effort and attention. Similar to other types of exposure that we discussed before, PPE, as in personal protective equipment, also applies to sound. So we talked about what you said in the gun range, you have the earplugs and the earmuffs. Now, remember in One Health that we talked briefly about how industry may not be voluntarily willing to provide workers with the best protections, which is why policy is important. So as kind of neglected as noise has been in, in the workplace, we do have regulations in place. OSHA has been enforcing those regulations for you know going on 50 years now. So that's a good thing. I would say those regulations themselves are not especially effective. And so I think there's lots of room for improvement there. But where I really see a, a void, a gap, a place where the government needs to step up is with regards to community noise and, and some of the sources we've talked about, cars, uh, railroads, uh, planes, buses, etc. So a little bit of a history lesson here. Back uh, between 1971 and 1981, Congress gave the Environmental Protection Agency the, the power essentially to regulate noise in community settings. So for that 10-year period, we had something called the Office of Noise Abatement and Control. And that office's sole job was to understand noise in America and help make America quieter. And in that 10 years, they did revolutionary research. They passed a, a small number of regulations around things like motorcycles and garbage trucks to regulate and say, if you are a manufacturer, you can't make a motorcycle that creates more than certain uh, level of decibels. That's truly the most effective way to control noise is to control it at the source. The Federal Aviation Administration, another success story for us, basically in the 1980s said, wow, there is a huge fraction of the public that's really annoyed by the ever-increasing number of flights and, and noisy jet engines. And they told the manufacturers of airplanes, you have to make these airplanes quieter. We don't care how you do it, but if you don't make them quieter, you can't fly them in the United States anymore. And the manufacturers you know, tore their head out and said, oh my gosh, we're going to go out of business. And then they fixed the problem. And so today we have about 90% fewer people exposed to high levels of aircraft noise than we did in the 1980s. That is a tremendous success. And it's because the government said, here is a really bad source of noise and we need to fix this. Unfortunately, since 1981, the EPA has been out of the business of regulating noise. Their office was defunded and it's never been refunded. So the laws are still on the books, but they're basically not enforced. 
So one of the easiest things we could do would be to, to resurrect or refund that office, encourage them to continue the great work that they did for that decade that they were in existence and start to fill this big gap. So we can start to say, hey, manufacturers of big trucks, trucking is a critical part of the American infrastructure and the movement of goods, but trucks are extremely noisy as anyone who's stood near one on a street or, or driven near one on a highway can attest. They can be made quieter. It's just a matter of developing the technology and implementing it and or changing the environment. You know, there are quieter pavements that are available where we could, as we reconstruct our roadways, actually purposely make them quieter. So there's lots of opportunities and relatively low-hanging fruit out there. And I think this is a theme that's going to come again and again on this show, which is the reason why we work so hard to push for regulations and policy is because some industry needs a little incentive to give their workers what they need. Right. And keeping in mind the balance of incentive is disincentive, right? So if you can incentivize companies to do particular things, but you can also disincentivize them from doing certain things. So changing exposure, changing the protection that you're providing, the general duty clause, the general duty clause of OSHA says that you have to provide people a safe workplace. And so for a while, I don't remember when exactly the noise protection came in, but there were issues because people were being exposed to things. And they were like, well, there's no specific rule about this. Well, it falls under the general duty clause because you have to give people safe, safe working environment, workplaces right? and PPE and that kind of stuff. So the sooner that we recognize that sound may be a hazardous thing, maybe we can push for more workplaces to include those uh, hearing protection. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. Hopefully after this, you have a newfound appreciation of hearing protection. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen. It helps the show immensely. Now, I have to ask because this is a sound episode. Headphones or speakers? Both. Oh, I am strictly headphones. I'm not a fan of speakers. Well, we like sit out in the backyard and listen to music with feels weird to sit next to somebody to listen to music with headphones in. So we have like a little portable speaker. And I, I have a car that I drive, which also means speakers. For a car, it makes sense. Uh, send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can also find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. More information regarding this episode can be found in the show notes below. Listeners, we have a Patreon page that is also our website. Visit the site for all major updates and bonus material. If you want to support the podcast directly, you can support us on our Patreon page as well. You can find a link for that in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health. <laughs>